Hi, this is Larry Christopher with the Liminal Worlds podcast. And tonight I'm going to be talking about a book that I recently read, but it's not a new book at all, but it's new to me. It's called The Image by Daniel J. Borston. This book actually uh, was first published, I believe it was 1961 or 1962. It's sort of a classic of sociology. I just happened to pick up a copy, uh, a used paperback. It was actually in a bookstore in Ithaca, New York. And it's sort of the kind of book I like to read as a kind of a, to reflect on how people were thinking decades ago. And this book, it's been called prophetic and uh, it's certainly very insightful about how images were becoming so dominant in society. Anyway, I published a review of this book on Goodreads. I'm going to mostly read from that review with some additional comments. Okay, so The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America by Daniel J. Borston. The Image is a modern classic of sociology, first published in 1961. Anyone reading it today will probably be struck by how Borston identifies trends that are so prevalent today, especially the way society is fixated on images rather than the underlying reality. Some might call Borston prescient, but it's more accurate to say that he was an astute observer of what was already happening in the mid-20th century as the era of television made sweeping changes in society. Because in the book itself, he doesn't really predict anything. He's just talking about what was happening in his time. So, yeah, he was insightful more than uh, predicting anything. The edition I picked up is a 25th anniversary edition with an introduction from the author and an afterword by conservative cultural critic George Will, written in 1987. So reading this today is like a time machine with multiple stops. For in the 1980s, the internet was still a decade in the future, but the MTV era was well underway, and uh, PCs were starting to get popular, even though they weren't connected to the internet, at least not widely. This is one of two influential books from the 1960s that deals with a similar issue, the other being Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord. The latter is still on my reading list, and from browsing through it in used bookstores, I expect it to be the more challenging of the two, as European philosophers can be rather abstract. Yeah, I was, uh, Debord is known as a situationist and a Marxist. It's pretty heavy, but it's definitely a book I want to read. By contrast, Daniel Borston writes in the straightforward manner of an American traditionalist or pragmatist. The subtitle of this book tells a great deal of the story. A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America. Borston is obsessed with the phrase pseudo-event, and it's used throughout the book. A pseudo-event is something that's contrived, such as a press conference or publicity shoot, as opposed to a happening that occurs spontaneously. His main point is that society is increasingly made up of pseudo-events. When you think that he wrote this some half-century before the advent of reality TV and social media, it's quite amazing. So again, I mean, he's uh, pointing out how these trends really began a lot sooner than we often believe. The image recounts trends that are so familiar now that we barely notice them, but that were just getting underway in the mid-20th century, such as the staged quality of presidential campaigns and debates and celebrity product endorsements. Speaking of celebrities, Borston may have been one of the first to thoroughly critique the whole idea. Celebrities, he notes, have largely supplanted heroes. While heroes are known for their character and great feats, 
celebrities are famous for being famous. As Borston puts it, a celebrity is a person who is known for his well-knownness. This is a critique that started to get popular with the rise of the celebrities such as Paris Hilton and the Kardashians, I guess around the early 2000s. Apparently, however, it dates back quite a bit before that. Borston explores the case of Charles Lindbergh at length, seeing his story as one of the first great, truly modern celebrities. Lindbergh was initially a hero in the traditional sense after making the first nonstop solo flight from New York to Paris. However, he quickly turned into a mere celebrity whose every movement was reported. When his baby was kidnapped, speculations and rumors filled the media for many months. One of the most interesting chapters is from, it's called From Traveler to Tourist, The Lost Art of Travel, which describes the emergence of another major trend as modern mass tourism supplanted the age of leisurely travel. Borson and other cultural critics look on with horror as cruise ships, commercial airplanes, hotel chains, and the emerging American highway system do away with differences and bring about the modern, increasingly homogenized world. Borston explains how tourism has created a whole new category of pseudo-events, such as museums and other attractions set up solely to entertain tourists, such as native dances and rituals performed outside of their original context and reimagined as entertainment. Like, this is something we see all over now, that uh, rituals and folklore, it's all being recreated as entertainment, like as a, in a theme park kind of environment, instead of in their original religious or uh, cultural context. Of course, a lot of what Borson is analyzing here, especially in the chapter about travel, but also throughout the book, is about a world that's increasingly populated, educated, and democratic. He explicitly mentions that prior to the 20th century, long-distance travel was mostly limited to the wealthy. He similarly complains about the phenomenon of bestsellers, which are books that are considered great because they sell well. He talks a lot about the redundancy of pseudo-events, like with celebrities are famous for being famous, bestsellers are famous for being bestsellers. So there's kind of a circularity to this rather than looking at what the intrinsic qualities of something, we're looking at how well it sells and how famous it is. As with travel, however, there's also the underlying issue of more people reading and buying books than ever before. The mass appeal of books began when mass printing became possible and literacy rates increased. In all fields, there tends to be a trade-off between quality and mass participation. As more people than ever before read, travel, vote, and participate in politics, watch TV and movies, and otherwise partake of culture, at the same time technology accelerates, more events and items take on a mass-produced quality. So this is why you could accuse uh, Borston and other such critics of elitism, because in a way he's kind of reminiscing about the time before the masses could read and travel and really participate in culture. Of course, now we've come to the other extreme where anybody can just uh, voice their opinion on the internet and without any uh, quality control at all. As Borston also laments, works of art were once all unique. Now anyone can buy a poster, postcard, or other reproduction of any painting. This is yet another example of where we have the advantage of widespread access versus the decline in quality and perhaps appreciation. 
While it's nice to be able to get a refrigerator magnet featuring Van Gogh's Starry Night, the very ease of acquiring such things necessarily takes away some of their magic. According to the bio at the conclusion of the book, which was obviously added post-1987, Borston died in 2004, just at the cusp of the next development of the image and culture. For as Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram have taken off, images have quickly come to dominate the internet. Although Borston may never have been a seen a selfie, I doubt if he'd be surprised as it's the next logical step in everything he was describing. The image is a kind of reactionary critique and rant on a single topic, albeit an important one. Like many thinkers trying to prove a very broad point, Borston may take his argument too far in some cases. He tries to draw sharp divisions, for example, between hero and celebrity, real events and pseudo-events, images and ideals. I'm not sure it's quite so straightforward. In Plato's Socratic Dialogues, he was preoccupied with the differences between appearance and reality. In fact, it's almost surprising that Borston doesn't mention the allegory of the cave. This was probably Plato's most famous uh, dialogue, which has enjoyed a resurgence of popularity recently. Part of the reason is with movies such as The Matrix, which were somewhat influenced by Plato. The whole idea now is also getting popular that we may be living in a uh, simulation. Plato discusses how shadows or images are mistaken as reality by the ignorant masses. Perhaps Borston doesn't reference this classic because it would have undercut his thesis, namely that the image is a relatively modern phenomenon. That means the image as a dominant force, not, not just images in general, of course. While the forces Borston identifies may not be as starkly new as he supposes, they certainly accelerated greatly in his time and even more so in our current time. I often find it instructive to read sociological viewpoints from earlier decades to see how modern trends got started. In the case of the image, we're dealing with one of the central issues of our time. For even if images were an issue as far back as Plato's time, they certainly didn't dominate the everyday consciousness of people as they do now. This is a complex issue, and it really doesn't do much good to simply lament it. Images are only getting more central to our existence. Does this mean we're sinking further into the realm of Plato's cave dwellers, the Maya of Buddhism, or perhaps the complacent citizens of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? Perhaps. However, there are also multiple ways to look at everything. There can be truth and beauty in images as well. Talking about uh, modern critiques, a book I, I also reviewed on Goodreads probably a year or two ago was called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nicholas Carr. That's only one example of books that are talking about how the internet and social media and smartphones are basically dumbing us down. And again, there's truth to it. It certainly contributes to a shortening of attention spans and certain superficiality. But there's ooh, another side as well. I mean, we have more access to information and uh, it's... It is getting more democratic and the people can express their views, even if they're not always well thought out. So there are always uh, multiple sides to a coin like this. Now, this wasn't in my review, but I'm just, I wrote additionally, uh, the Buddhists have a saying that samsara is nirvana. Samsara refers to the conditional world of birth, death, and rebirth. This is the material world, which is ultimately illusory in, in like Eastern philosophy. 
it's sort of sometimes associated with Maya as well. I mean, the idea that what we see, it's not that it doesn't exist, but it's not the ultimate nature of reality. Nirvana is the transcendent state beyond all transience and illusion. However, the seers also recognize that the two are ultimately united. Perhaps we can make a similar, similar argument about images versus reality. Images may be deceptive and often inferior copies of the original, but in another sense, reality encompasses everything, including copies and images. If we simply take in all these images mindlessly, we are indeed immersed in illusion. However, perhaps it's possible to embrace images in a conscious manner and thus transcend the illusion. That's all about all I have for tonight. If anyone has any comments, uh, send them in. I'll, I'll put a link to my uh, review. And in future podcasts, I'm going to be trying to move more in the direction of doing interviews as well as just my own material. So if anyone has any ideas or suggestions or would like to participate, just uh, let me know. So thanks for listening to the Liminal Worlds podcast. This is Larry Christopher. Uh, good night.